Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. The show that is like puberty. You know when it starts, but you never really know when it ends. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine. Hey, it is literally a, uh, a, a week away until the world begins to converge, or the pipe smoking world begins to converge on uh, St. Charles, Illinois. Yep, just about uh, just about a week away, everybody will start heading that way. Um just a reminder, I will be in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina on that Friday for my son's graduation as he gets his master's degree, and then early that Saturday morning, so uh, Saturday the 5th or the 4th or whatever it is, I don't know, early that Saturday morning, I'll be hopping on a plane and heading to Chicago, look for me bleary-eyed and uh, arriving in the smoking tent and uh, in the show floor sometime around noon on Saturday, and then I'll be there until Monday morning. Uh, looking forward to seeing all of you. Please make sure reach out, say hi. I don't know, you know, say something nice. Or uh, if you don't have anything nice to say, say what's really on your mind. Won't bother me. Um, anyway, on tonight's show in pipe parts, I'm going to talk about uh, further identifying a pipe that you've purchased. Maybe it's an oddball. Maybe it's a rarity. Whatever. I'm going to help you with some uh, with some tips to further identify those pipes of yours. And then my guest is uh, Gene Umberger. Gene is a, a fellow doctor of pipes and uh, an author and a book collector and a pipe smoker. And I had a great conversation with him, so you'll get to hear that. Then we've got uh, new music from Dom Flemons. Yeah, going, going back and uh, Dom's got a new album out, so we got that. And Mailbag and a, uh, a rant dedicated to drinks, in particular straws and lids. There you go. All that coming up on tonight's episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. And remember, if you have any comments or questions, email me, brian, at pipesmagazine.com. If you don't get an answer in a couple of days, email me again, because the spam filter might catch it, and who knows. Anyway, uh, do that, or you can post them on the Pipes Magazine radio show page. And you must be of uh, legal smoking age to listen to the show wherever you happen to be. So there you go. All right, let's get the show rolling. Everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in. And here we go. How to identify a pipe, not, you know, not one that's got a, got a straight brand name out there. How to identify a pipe has come up a couple of times uh, in questions that I've had sent to me via Facebook and email and stuff like that. So I thought, you know what, it's a good time to go over it one more time and maybe give a little bit more in-depth detail. So obviously, if the pipe has a brand name on it, that makes it really simple. It's that brand name. That's easy, right? Well, if it's got a slightly different stem logo, it may be a time when uh, that manufacturer was doing a uh, doing a different run for somebody. Uh, Sassini did that with some of their different lines, like the Fantail or a couple others had some uh, had some slightly different logos on them. Uh, but again, the, keep in mind that you know they may have done a uh, they may have done a run or a batch of of pipes for a specific importer in a foreign country, and that importer wanted their logo on the stem instead of Big Ben's logo or that manufacturer's logo. So uh, keep in mind that you know the the stamping on the wood is going to be much more important than what's on the stem. That stamping on the wood is going to give you the origin. Now, what happens if you come up with a pipe that's got you know a name that you don't recognize? Well, the first thing I do is I, uh, I, I do a Google search, and I put that name in parentheses, and I might put in there with that the name of it and pipe, and do a Google search simply to see what shows up. Uh, by putting it in parentheses, that means that that has to show up actually in that order in that way. Uh, there's a couple other tricks that you can do with Google searches, like, for example, putting an asterisk in the middle, and that will allow for Google to insert a word that may or may not really be there. Um, 
But again, you're trying to narrow it down. And in the recent searches that I've helped with, uh, we were able to determine that these, and as as they're going to be in most cases, that these are pipes that were made as private label pipes for a specific retailer. So, uh, you know, back in all the way up until the 80s, it was very common for a retailer of some stature to go to a pipe manufacturer or an importer and say, hey, make me this pipe and put this name on it and uh, and I'll buy, you know, I'll buy 600 of them assorted in these shapes. So you've got this name on there, and then you usually have a country of origin for the pipe. Sometimes you don't. It just depends on when the when or where the import restrictions are, uh, especially if the uh, if the pipe is made in England or made if it's made in England and sold to an English tobacco shop. It doesn't have to have the country of origin on it. Uh, if it was made in the USA, it doesn't have to say that on there. If it was imported, if it was made in the USA and sold to an American company. So you have to, you know, you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt that, you know, the rules and regulations weren't the same back then. But what you can do is, again, do a Google search of that name and find out. And odds are you'll find out that it was a tobacconist or a, tobacco, a chain of tobacconists, uh, going way back now if you want to figure out who made that pipe here's where it gets a little tricky is there a shape number on it if there is you look for that shape number on a chart from the old pipe factories a uh, simple google search of shape chart for camoys shape chart for barling shape chart for sassini pipes uh, learn how to do those Google searches. Uh, Chris's pipepages.com. I'm not sure what level of, uh, of disrepair it's in at this point, but there are still some really good shape charts there for you to see and look at. Uh, so again, and you can look at some of the more modern pipe companies too. For example, Savinelli made pipes for other companies for years and years and years and probably still does. But if they're going to, if they use a shape of a pipe that, you know, their shape chart's going to run pretty much consistent because they're not going to customize a shape specifically for a private label situation. So look at the shape of the pipe. Uh, try to identify the, you know, if it's got a shape number stamped on it and then that shape number matches the shape chart. Well, that's a pretty good shot at that's who made that pipe. Uh, you can also look at the made in country stamp if it has one on it especially the made in England stamp because those were stylized by each manufacturer. So in the situation of one of my Disneyland pipes, I was able to identify that by the made in England stamp on there, that that was definitely from the Sheraton factory because it was done in the same style that they did. Yeah. So you can, you can narrow them down that way. So you've got the country stamp and then you've got the shape and it does take some searching around and looking around. Uh, the other website that I use an awful lot for this is pipefill.eu, P-I-P-E-P-H-I-L.eu. It's a great site for identifying stem logos, identifying manufacturers names, identifying, uh, they've even got some shape charts and they've got a great way to help you identify the date of your Dunhill pipe and so on and so on. So again, when you get a pipe and you look at it and you go, wow, this is a really good pipe, but I don't understand what the name of it is because it doesn't show up as any regular name on like pipedia.org. Uh, you, you need to do a little bit of homework and do the Google searches. Uh, in some cases, you'll find that you'll end up on uh, newspapers.com or one of those places where you'll see a name of a pipe shop from way back. Uh, or you may find even more history on that pipe shop than you even wanted to know if it shows up in Wikipedia or somebody's got some pictures of it. Uh, don't forget to search by images as well as searching by uh, you know, searching by the articles and the hits on pages. So you've got that, and then you've also got the shape of the pipe, and if there is a shape number on it, try to match that up to the factory that it came from. And then you've got the country made-in logo or made-in stamping that may help you identify even further down if, 
if it's an English pipe, uh, you know, it may help you identify the actual factory that it came from. Again, comments and questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. Uh, post them on Pipes Magazine on the radio show page there, and I'll get to them. Or you can uh, follow me or friend request me on Facebook and send it through Facebook Messenger. All right, in just a minute, my conversation with Gene Umberger. This is Internet Radio. I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. At Cornell & Deal, we think the best things in life are better with age, and we are passionate about creating the best possible pipe tobacco available. Fueled by this passion, we introduced the Cellar Series, a collection of blends like no other. While the blends in this series are ready to smoke now, each one has been meticulously designed to optimize depth and complexity as the tobacco ages in the tin. Currently, the Cellar Series is comprised of Oak Alley, Chenet's Cake, Joie de Vivre, Old Grove, and Bourbon Blue, but we will be unveiling new additions to this very special series as time goes on. Pick up a tin to smoke now and save a few for later enjoyment, so that you can experience all the richness and subtlety each blend will reveal through the years. Cornell & Deal's Cellar Series. The secret ingredient is time. Contact your local or online retailer for information. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show and uh, joining us is a fellow doctor of pipes, author, book collector. I I don't know what else to don't know what else to say about you Gene, but Gene Umberger, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Well, thanks for having me. All right, so uh where Let's get to know you and find out where where did you grow up and when did uh, when did pipes and tobaccos come into your life? Uh, well, they would have come into my life when I was living in uh, Oneonta, New York, and I can give a very specific date. My father gave me a pipe on my 18th birthday, and he pretty much said, "Smoke this, not cigarettes," <laughs> which was kind of curious because. I had never tried cigarettes. I had no desire to try cigarettes, but my eldest sister had taken up cigarettes, and I could tell that my parents were not keen about that. And so I think my father intended to head me off at the pass, uh, which he did, because uh, my birthday is in April, and so very shortly I was in college, and indeed I took up pipe smoking when I was there. And this was uh, the, the, this was not in the past few years, was it? No, uh, I graduated high school in 1966. So, so your your father uh, maybe he maybe he knew a lot more than you than you thought he did at that age. Well, he was a pipe smoker himself, uh, and also a c- cigar smoker. And uh, I always enjoyed the aroma when he was smoking either the pipe or the cigar. I do remember that uh, he smoked uh, Sir Walter Raleigh pipe tobacco. And years later, jumping ahead, I tried it, but uh, found that it was too strong for my taste, but I loved the aroma of it. <laughs> so do you remember what kind of pipe that was that he gave you? Um, I Actually, I still have it. It's an apple shape, but it's uh, a no-name brand. I think it says honey on it. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been one of those that was treated in the bowl with honey and made to be extra sweet at the start. Could be. I think probably, because it's the only recollection I have, that he gave me a package of, uh, no surprise to you, cherry blend. <laughs> so all of those of us of a certain age often started out with tobaccos like that. So you go off to college, and do you stick with the uh, with the cherry blend, or do you do you start branching out right away? Well, um, I went to college at uh, Hobart and William Smith College in Geneva, New York, and it was a small town. There was no pipe shop there, but there was a drugstore in a nearby plaza, and surprisingly, so they had a huge selection of tobaccos all of those that we would call drugstore-type blends, all sorts of tin tobacco uh, from overseas. Uh, and I think during the four years I was there, I managed to work through most of them. Wow. Uh, it was also, of course, 
in addition to pipe smoking, I had a love of books. I've been a book collector for some time. But during those years in college, uh, I started picking up paperback copies of titles that will be familiar to many of your listeners. Uh, Carl Weber's The Pleasures of Pipe Smoking. Um, To me, that's interesting because it wasn't until years later that I discovered that he had published an earlier book called Rubber's Guide to Pipes and Pipe Smoking. Uh, but The Pleasures of Pipe Smoking came out in 65, and as you might remember, that was the year after the Surgeon General's report. Yeah. And so there was a chapter in that book about that report, and there was a chapter about women in smoking, uh, pipe smoking, which was now coming in vogue. Um, Charles Graves, The Pipe Smoker's Guide, that came out in 69. I was still in college. Uh, George Hermann's The Pipe, and then the two Dunhill books, uh, Alfred Dunhill's The Pipe Book, which came out originally in 24, but a new edition, a revised edition, came out in 69. Again, I got that as a Christmas gift when I was in college. And then uh, Alfred H. Dunhill's The Gentle Art of Smoking. So that was kind of a core group of books that I acquired then, and between pipe smoking and acquiring these books, I was on my way towards focusing on collecting uh, tobacchiana and uh, books about the topic. And did did reading the the Alfred Dunhill books did that kind of lead you towards more towards like the the English traditional shaped pipes? Not really. Um, I've never been a pipe collector. Um, I've always had probably a rather small collection of pipes, and they've always been rather functional. Um, it's always been for me more about uh, uh, style, whether it's a bent stem pipe or um, a long stem pipe. Um, the brand name has never meant a great deal to me, and so I don't really distinguish do I collect English pipes versus others. So that I mean that's in, that's fascinating. So more more to you was the was the history and the. And the uh, and, and I guess the art of and then collecting the books and the writings, right? And uh, extending to all areas of tobacchiana, uh, so not just pipe smoking, but books about cigars and even cigarettes and tobacco chewing and all the multitude of accessories that were utilized in consuming tobacco in those various ways. So what was your what was your major in school? History. And then you went on and you also did a master's. Was that in history? Uh, well, in a wide field, it was folk studies. And the program at the time had uh, its main emphasis was on folklore. Uh, and then a secondary emphasis was on material folk culture. So the study of... Uh, uh, housing, for example, mm-hmm. uh, utensils, that type of thing. Um, a lot of the students actually majored in the folklore part of the program and intended to go on for their doctorates in that area. That was not of great interest to me. I was interested more in the material folk culture. Uh, so, what? <laughs> with all that, what did you and what? What did you end up doing for a living? Uh, I ended up going into the museum field. In fact, it was during uh, my summer break and graduate school that uh, I I worked at uh, a museum on campus called the Kentucky Museum. And that got me really interested in museum work. And then uh, once I graduated from the program, eventually I wound up... uh, at the Rochester Museum of Science Center in Rochester, New York, uh, where I had a grant for one year to study museology. And was uh, and and so where have you where have you worked since then? Well, I had a number of positions at the Rochester Museum of Science Center. Uh, I worked as a conservator for some time. I helped develop an archaeological conservation lab. Uh, I ended up there as the curator of history and chairman of the history department. And then uh, I was there for just over 20 years, and then I came out here to Green Bay, Wisconsin, 
um, where I was first the assistant and then the director of the Neville Public Museum. Wow. So you've... <laughs> You've gotten a chance to uh, to get your hands on some old stuff and some fun stuff. Is is there anything that you didn't like having to deal with? Um, not that I can think of. Uh, what I really enjoyed about my work, particularly at the Rochester Museum and Science Center, was uh, the diverse experiences I had in holding different positions, uh, which has been very beneficial. Uh, ultimately, for when I became a director. All right, now let, let's go back to your, uh, I believe it's your master's thesis, and that would have been a, a few years back, and it was called Tobacco Farming, the Persistence of Tradition, correct? R right. Uh, I went to graduate school at Western Kentucky University, uh, which at the time was one of the few schools that had a folk studies program. And... Uh, one of the things I've enjoyed uh, in my career is that I've often been able to uh, apply my avocation uh, to my vocation. And so even in graduate school, uh, lo and behold, I found I could do my master's thesis on tobacco farming. And because it was a folk studies program, there was an emphasis on, uh, as I say in the title, the persistence of tradition and how tobacco was grown. And here we're talking about uh, air-cured burley. Right, right. That's a perfect spot for us to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more about, uh, in particular, about some of these traditions and then pipe smoking and all other stuff. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. My name is Shane Ireland, and I'm the pipe manager at SmokingPipes.com. It's my job to source and select the absolute best pipes from all over the world. We take collecting seriously, so you should think of us as your team of personal pipe shoppers. When you browse our site and make your selection, the pipe you've picked out has traveled from the maker to our merchandising and quality control department. It was then given to our highly skilled photographers, videographers, and copywriters before being carefully and lovingly packaged by our shipping team. The pipe you see is the pipe you get, and it's just the one you've been searching for. Whether you're on the hunt for that next special piece to add to your collection, or would simply like a recommendation from our extensive selection of tobaccos, give us a call at 1-888-366-0345, and our friendly experts will be glad to assist you. We are quality. We are experts. We are collectors. We are SmokingPipes.com. We're back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, visiting with Gene Umberger and uh, Gene. So, what was going back to your master's thesis? I would imagine a lot. Well, I know a lot has changed since then, but was there something? Was there a tradition that was surprising, or a tradition that you found interesting that when you were doing your research? Um, nothing. Uh strikes me as being a particular surprise or even a shock. Uh, it was interesting to discover just how much hand labor was involved in uh, producing a year's tobacco crop. Uh, I even had the opportunity uh, that summer when I was working on the thesis to, uh, I had a, a test farm that I was studying and uh, I helped them uh, cut down the tobacco plants in the field uh, and helped get that into the barn. Uh, I vividly remember how sticky my hands got <laughs> from dealing with those tobacco stalks. And also, um, I guess I was surprised about, for me, the incredible weight of those stalks. You really worked your butt off when you <laughs> were in that field, cutting those stalks down uh, with what I call a tomahawk knife. Um, uh, so it's a lot of hard labor, and it's an intense process for a good bit of the year. Did you get any any kind of nicotine poisoning or feel dizzy at times from handling the tobacco? No, um, because I was not out through that long, but it's interesting you bring that up because many years later, uh, I started reading about uh, what they call green tobacco sickness, and um, it, it can be fatal. I mean, it's a very serious business uh, because uh, people aren't adequately protected and it's hot and it's humid and uh, 
the nicotine gets absorbed into their skin, uh, and people can get violently ill, and in some cases they can actually die. Um, I never heard or, or observed that at, during my time, but in reading about it, I could understand how it could happen because of the working conditions. Yeah, and the weather is perfect that time of the year for being out in a field in the sunshine. Yeah, and it's it's hot. I <laughs> I'm uh, basically a New York Stater, <laughs> transplanted to Wisconsin, and uh, I guess it always surprised me when I went to football games at Western Kentucky University that uh, I'd be sitting in the stands in uh, October in shirt my short uh, shirt sleeves. Um, Whereas in the north, I'd be bundled up with a winter coat. Yes, <laughs> sometimes somehow going to a football game in Florida just doesn't do it for you when it's hotter than Hades and it's December. Yeah, it just uh, would feel odd to me. Um, so in the in this time of uh, during college and when you were trying out all the different tobaccos, did you find a, a style of tobacco that you liked more than others? Um, not really. Um, I, I, for all the tobaccos I tried, uh, the only one that sticks in my mind that I think I stayed with for some time, and, and rather surprisingly so, was Flying Dutchman. Yeah. And if you're familiar with that, it's very, very thin strands, and you've got to do a, a super job of packing your bowl with that tobacco, or you're going to really burn your tongue. And why I continued to put up with that, I'm not quite sure. I think I really did like the aroma, uh, but you really had to fuss with it and be careful when you prepared to, to smoke a bowl of that. But I do remember enjoying that. And some of the drugstore varieties uh, I know I enjoyed. Um, M4 was one of them. Was pipe smoking an all-day-long thing for you, or was it just the uh, the occasional? Uh, for me, pipe smoking has never been more than... Uh, perhaps generally average one bowl per day, uh, and probably at most two. And is it more towards the evening at the end of the day, or are you uh, sitting down with a book? Well, for all the years I, I worked, it was uh, in the evening. And uh, now that I'm retired, it tends to be uh, uh, early afternoon when I can sit on the patio and, and enjoy smoking outside. I generally don't smoke much at all during the wintertime. Yeah, well, you don't have much front porch time or patio time up there in Green Bay. No. Uh, but you do have a good football team. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> and if you live there, you have to support them. I'm sorry? If you live there, you have to support them. Yeah, well, it's interesting that uh, uh, years ago, many years ago, I was a Packers fan long before I was aware of a place called Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, I was also a, a Vikings fan, our, our hated enemies at this point, <laughs> and also a fan of the Buffalo Bills. Of course, I was in uh, Rochester, New York, not far from where they were playing. Wow. And so, and then you, so you've been collecting books and tobacchiana all along, and then you wrote your own book. Right, right. Um, well, to go back a bit on the point you've just made, um, you could say the foundation was laid for what I ended up doing through my father giving me that pipe, and I took up pipe smoking, and then I started buying those uh, cheap paperback copies of some tobacco books in college. Uh, but when I was in the service after being uh, in school, uh, for the last two years of my three-year commitment, I was stationed in the Netherlands. And somehow I got wind of Tom Dunn's The Pipe Smokers Ephemeris. Yeah. And, of course, as you know, and anyone familiar with that, that was, and uh, as it grew in size, became a cornucopia of leads for books and ephemera and all sorts of things. And so that um, started me writing to all sorts of contacts to acquire material. But then the single most critical uh, uh, influence on my developing as a bibliophile uh, and a tobacco uh, book collector would have been uh, contacting Ben Rappaport. Uh, and that yeah. same year I learned of Tom Dunn's ephemeris, he uh, 
he published his A Tobacco Source book. And that was not only a bibliography of books in English and foreign languages, but also sections about uh, pipe and tobacco museums, which I used when I was touring around Europe when I was in the service, sections on uh, art and tobacco, so places you could write to for postcards that featured tobacco, um, collector clubs, tobacco periodicals, that kind of thing. And the following year, I then uh, finally got in touch with Ben. And because he was stationed in Germany and I was in the Netherlands, we had constant correspondence going back and forth. Uh, I'd write a letter one day and uh, he'd respond in a, a day or two and then I'd write back again. His letters were chocolate full of leads for publications, past and present. Um, he sometimes offered things for, me, uh, for sale that he had duplicates of. And, and actually within a couple of years, once I'd gotten out of the service, he started sending me a separate, from the letter, uh, type list of books for sale. And again, you might be familiar with his Antiquarian Tobacchiana publication. Yeah. Uh, well, that developed out of that, and it developed eventually into a quarterly. Now his publication is more like uh, Tom Dunn's The Ephemeris. <laughs> it's in a regular quarterly. <laughs> so yeah. It comes out when he's in the mood to put it out. Um, but between his uh, a tobacco source book, which eventually morphed into uh, the Global Guide to Tobacco Literature, published in 1989, my correspondence with him and his AT newsletter, uh, he always had more stuff than I could possibly afford to buy. And so over the course of 40-plus years, I have continued to purchase books from him, and uh, he's also given leads on where I could go elsewhere for material. So... His influence was critical in my developing as a collector. <laughs> Are there, just off the top of your head and for the benefit of maybe some of our younger listeners, are there some pipe-related books that are your favorites that you can point out? Um, yeah, I, I actually go back to one that uh, came out when I was in uh, graduate school. It's uh, Carl E. was the book of Pipes and Tobacco. Yeah. Um, which I think still holds up very well. Um, and it came out at a time when there was kind of a, a dearth of that kind of a book. It was uh, well-written, uh, beautifully illustrated in color. Um, that would can be picked up at a reasonable price on one of the book sites. Um, of course, you've got the, uh, the Hacker books. Uh, he kind of covers the ground. You've got his, of course, the Ultimate Pipe book. Um, and then you've got Rare Smoke, the ultimate guide to pipe collecting. Um, he later came out with a, a paperback, uh, Pipe Smoking, a 21st Century Guide. Uh, so his books certainly uh, cover the territory. Um, there's another one, um, uh, Artisans and Trademarks, and, and that's kind of a standard work uh, for anyone getting seriously involved with collecting pipes. Those readily come to mind. And then your book, Tobacco and Its Use, if you can, obviously it talks about tobacco and the different ways to use it, but if you can just give us a brief summary, because I'm looking on Amazon right now, and there's still some paperbacks that are available on the used market. Yeah, yeah, there are. Um, well, that was, uh, the idea for that came when I was in uh, graduate school. And... Uh, I was coming across uh, a number of very interesting articles, some because of my work in folk studies. For example, there was an article, uh, Tobacco in Folk Cures in Western Society, and uh, the spread of tobacco, a study in cultural diffusion. Uh, so articles like that were coming to my attention, and it was my sense then, which has only been confirmed years later, that there was no adequate or single source for material broadly based in Tobacchiana uh, that was uh, periodical literature. There were any number of book bibliographies on tobacco and its history and smoking, um, but nothing that really, uh, in a strong way, focused on periodical literature. And 
Uh, I actually have a very lengthy subtitle to that book, Tobacco and Its Use, because I also cite, uh, for example, chapters in books. One might be a very pertinent chapter on some tobacco topic, which appears in a book that really seems to have nothing to do with tobacco. Um, and dissertations, master's theses, short stories, that kind of thing. So it's a real combination of a lot of material that you would not find in sort of a standard book bibliography of tobacco and smoking. And I got so excited about the concept of this publication that I wanted to quit what I was doing and work on it, but uh, of course that made no common sense. And I <laughs> waited till I uh, got my first job and then uh, uh, finally began work on it. And the first edition came out in 1984. And that had... Uh, Maybe, uh, I want to say, three or 4,000 entries in it. Uh, I'm now working on the fourth edition, which uh, is probably shooting for closer to maybe 16,000, 17,000 entries. Wow. So, so, so when, of, when we order it, the uh, the the, uh, the delivery guy may have to get a may have to get a forklift. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and in terms of the book itself, there are, very quickly, uh, there are three main sections. And one is uh, tobacco, and then that's broken down into many topics that refer just to tobacco, like its history and talking about uh, Nicotiana, the plant, uh, the culture of tobacco, which gets into cultivation, and then tobacco industry and trade, and that has further subdivisions for cigar and cigarette. Um, and then the second major section is tobacco consumption, and so that gets into divisions for cigar smoking, cigarette smoking, and, of course, pipe smoking. And that is broken down into many categories devoted to all sorts of different pipes for consuming tobacco, including, of course, briar. Um, and uh, then also the other forms of tobacco consumption, like stuff taking and tobacco chewing. And then the final section I call Tobacciana, and that gets into uh, art and tobacco and uh, the literature of tobacco, uh, even, for example, philately and tobacco, and a whole section on smoking accessories. So there's not to be exaggerating, there's kind of a multitude of subcategories in all these sections. Uh, so, for example, if you were really interested in pipe tampers, you would not have to weigh to any large quantity material, by following this detailed uh, table of contents, you could actually find a single category devoted to pipe tampers and go right to the page where all those articles are listed about that topic. So, so that way we could dive in real deep into one niche for a while, go broke trying to collect everything we want, and then come back and find another niche. Exactly. Well, we... we <laughs> Uh, we appreciate that. Um, since you don't have a very large pipe collection, do you know how big your tobacco books collection is? Yeah. Um, at this point, it's probably somewhere north of about 2,500 items. And have you read them all? Uh, not all of them because okay. uh, you know a certain percentage are simply there for reference. And, and do, then, you, do you have some, some in books. foreign languages? Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, because I don't read foreign languages, I have tended to focus in the past on those that were very well illustrated. Uh, because the Europeans have been much more successful in putting out um, excellent books on tobacco and smoking that are extremely well illustrated. And they will illustrate in a sense, a material culture that you're just not going to see in publications coming out of this country, or even Britain, for, for example. Yeah, having been in Europe for a couple of weeks recently, I can tell you that they are, they, the, the Europeans as a whole tend to do a much better, uh, a much better job on deep dives into parts of culture and art and history. Yeah, and, and of course, unfortunately, well, fortunately for me, when I was in the service and traveling around Europe, uh, I made it a point to visit a lot of pipe and tobacco museums. Unfortunately, now a lot of those have closed. 
It's just yeah. the, the way of the world. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the way of the world, you started out going to some pipe shows way back early on, and and you're still active at the Chicago Pipe Show. Uh, you want to, in about two or three minutes, can you talk about the differences in the pipe shows of the past versus now? Um, well, I can make it very easy because I've only ever, well, I shouldn't say it. I did go to one. One time I went down to visit uh Ben Rappaport in Virginia, and he took me down to Richmond to a core meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was my first introduction to a pipe show, uh, and I don't have any strong recollection of it. It was a fun time, but it was just for part of a day. Um, but then when I moved out here to Green Bay, Wisconsin, uh, Fred Janusik, you might well know his name, is a yep. fellow doctor of pipe, um, he talked up the Chicago show. And for me, that's just a a three-hour drive south. And so I moved here in the spring of 98, and in 99 I went to the first Chicago uh, meeting uh, or show, and uh, I've gone ever since, almost 20 years. And look forward to it every year, just like we're we're getting ready for it this year. I've already packed stuff to uh, uh, give to the uh, auction that raises funds for the show. And now as a, uh, as a doctor of pipes, uh, you and I both have that special meeting on Saturday night that we get to go to. That's right. After the dinner. Yeah. And I, and I know at least the drinks are free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gene, we will wrap this up with the fast five final questions. No right answer, no wrong answer. Just whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? Okay. Sure. What is your favorite pipe? Well, I find that, um, for whatever reason, uh, I have uh, steered towards uh, Don Carlos pipes. I have several of those, and I've always found them to be great smokers. And what is your favorite tobacco? Um, it's <laughs> at one time I knew it as Adirondack mixture, which I got at uh, with Pipe and Book in Lake Placid, New York. And only many years later did I learn that it was surprise Lane One Q. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what is your favorite drink? And keep in mind, you live in Green Bay now, so it has to be some sort of beer. Um, actually, Heineken, uh, made in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and my second favorite would be a gin and tonic. Oh, there we go. Uh, this, this year at the show, I'll talk to you a little bit more about all the gins that I tried in England in the past couple of months. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, I, I plan to head back there uh, myself to London in this coming fall. Ah, gin capital of the world. Um, when it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? A book. That was pretty obvious for you. Uh, and then the final question might be more difficult, but do you have a favorite pipe smoking related memory that we didn't discuss? Um, actually, I do. If you've got a few minutes to hear it, absolutely love these. Okay. Um, as I mentioned before, I was in the service after college, and during the two years I was in uh, the Netherlands, uh, in the fall of 72, uh, I went over to London on leave for 10 days, and I got a chance to meet uh, Peter McNabb, who was the director of the Pipe Club of Great Britain. And uh, my first day there, I met him at his office, and he arranged for me to take tours of uh, the Parker and Hardcastle uh, Company, and also the Grosvenor Company. But then he also invited me to join him to go to a meeting of the London Pipe Club. So two days later, I meet him after work, and we go to a pub, and he buys me a pint of beer. Now, I have to understand, at that point in my life, I didn't drink. Not for moral reasons, I just couldn't stand the taste of alcohol. (laughs) So I'm a guest, I drink the pint of beer, on an empty stomach, and then we go to the meeting. They were going to have a, uh, a pipe competition, which was a dry run for their later competition, where the winner of that would then go to the national pipe smoking competition. So I joined them. We were each given a uh, competition clay pipe, which was about eight and a half inches long. And my personal feeling is if you smoke, the same tobacco in a briar and a clay pipe, the clay pipe is going to give you a stronger taste. 
in effect. And we smoked an English tobacco, which again, I thought was strong. I, I found out later from Peter McNabb that it was St. Bruno. <laughs> so the competition starts, and you can see where this is going. Empty stomach, <laughs> alcohol, clay pipe, strong tobacco. I started perspiring, <laughs> seriously perspiring. I thought, oh my God, I'm going to faint. And then I started to get really sick, and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to throw up. But I was determined to finish off my bowl full of tobacco and somehow, some way, managed to get through it and did so and clocked in at a, a decent 44 minutes. After the competition, Peter McNabb came over to my table and he said that he had been glancing over where I was sitting during the competition. He said, you looked pale. <laughs> you don't know how right you were. <laughs> <laughs> but but you made it through like a champion. I made it through, and I thought, when I was feeling like I might faint, I thought, how is this going to reflect on myself and Americans in general? <laughs> <laughs> and the beer wasn't even cold either. No, I, I remember that too, yeah. <laughs> All right, to find any of uh, Gene's writings, it's under Eugene. Umberger, U M B E R G E R. Gene, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, thanks for all the work you've done. Well, thank you, and I enjoyed talking to you. We'll be back in just a minute. What are you looking for in a pipe? Is it the quality of aged briar? Is it a certain shape or finish? Maybe it's the sound engineering that ensures an effortless, smooth draw with each and every puff. That's exactly the kind of pipe Savinelli has delivered for generations now. With such a variety of shapes, finishes, and sizes, it's easy to find something that fits your sensibility and style. Just this year, we've expanded our lineup to include the Bianca, the Lancelotto, the 2015 Collection, and the final installment in the Leonardo da Vinci line, the Vitruvio. For a bolder style, try our more colorful 2015 editions as well the exotic cashmere, the sultry licoricea, and the striking archipelago red. So whatever you're looking for in a pipe, know there's a Savinelli waiting for you. Contact your local or online retailer to find your Savinelli today. This is Internet Radio. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show, and do check out Gene's books and, uh, you know, uh, lots of good stuff there to uh, read and even some great suggestions on books. So, uh, you know, you want to learn more about pipes? There you go. All right, music-wise, uh, my friend Dom Flemons, Grammy Award-winning uh, American uh, American songster, Dom Flemons, has a brand-new album out. It's called Black Cowboys, and it's available on Spotify, iTunes, or you can go directly to his website, theamericansongster.com, and uh, get his music there, which I highly suggest you do. It's great, uh, great listening music, especially it seems like, uh, to me, it seems like as the weather's warming up, you know, perfect music for this time of the year. Anyway, the song that I've uh, chosen for tonight's episode is... Home on the Range, and it's uh, done like I've never heard it before. So here's Dom Flemons. Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam, where the deer and the antelope play. Where seldom is heard a discouraging word And the skies are not cloudy all day Where the air is so pure, the zephyr so free The breeze is so balmy and light That I would not exchange my home on the range for all of the city so bright home, home on the range Where the deer and the antelope play Where seldom is heard 
discouraging word And the skies are not cloudy all day The red man was pressed from this part of the west He's likely no more to return To the bank of Red River Where seldom if ever Their flickering campfires burn How often at night When the heavens are bright With the light from the glittering stars have I stood here amazed And asked as I gazed If their glory exceeds that of ours Home, home on the range Where the deer and the antelope play Where seldom is heard a discouraging word And the skies are not cloudy all day I love these wild flowers in this dear land of ours The curlew I love to hear scream And I love the white rocks and the antelope flocks That graze on the mountain tops green Oh, give me a land where the bright diamond sand Flows leisurely down the stream where the graceful white swan goes gliding along Like a maid in a heavenly dream Home, home on the range Where the deer and the antelope play Where seldom is heard a discouraging word And the skies are not cloudy all day not exchange my home on the range where the deer and the antelope play where seldom is heard a discouraging word and the skies are not cloudy all day home home on the range where the deer and the antelope play where seldom is heard a discouraging word And the skies are not cloudy all day Low to Dom's website and sign up for his emails. The email header has Dom holding a pipe in his mouth, so no better way to support a uh, young pipe smoker than uh, go on there, sign up for his emails, check out one of his tours, and, uh, you know, buy an album from him. There is a message for you. In the mailbag, there is a, a good amount of stuff to get through, so let's get going on it. Uh, Mike Zika writes, uh, Brian, I just wanted to let you know how much I enjoyed the last two shows with Eric and Javon Shear. Both interviews remind me uh, exactly of what I experience at the monthly Chicago Pipe Collectors Club meetings. I always find someone new to talk to about pipes and tobaccos, and I'm always surprised at how interesting and diverse the conversations are. I also really like the original and latest show with Keith Moore. I love that song from Keith's latest visit. And of course, anything with Shane is always good. And Mike, I'm looking forward to seeing you in Chicago. Uh, going back to last week, uh, Light My Briar said, one of my favorite ev episodes, Javon Shear is a cool guy. Um, yeah, I don't know what cool guy translates to in Azerbaijanian, but I'm still still having my underpipe every morning and my uh, underpipe every night before bed. And then uh, Casey Ghost writes, your statements on what pipe beginners should buy was very good. I'd also tell them that they should look at estate pipes. A real good way to get a better pipe on the cheap. Uh, I couldn't believe Javon 
speaks six languages. I can barely speak one. His interview showed that he speaks very good English. The interview is very informative, and you can never go wrong with Derbingle. Yeah, glad I pulled out some uh, some old Bing Crosby. And I'll also agree with uh, Casey Ghost on the uh, on the estate pipe. Uh, on the estate pipes as a as a great way to to get a starter pipe but i will caution you don't know the condition and until you have a little bit of experience you may not know exactly what you're getting into unless you have a friend helping you out or you're really dealing with a trusted estate seller uh down home smoker writes the interview with javon Shear was enjoyable and as casey ghost said his english was very impressive I'll also agree with Casey Ghost's suggestions for new smokers to get an estate pipe so they can get a better pipe than they would with the normal price. Uh, the music was also enjoyable. Pleasant smokes. Thank you very much. And uh, Cosmic said, I enjoyed the interview with Javon. He is a great guy and he does a great job of moderating the forums. I find it fascinating how pipe smokers from other countries get their pipes and tobaccos and what is available in those places. It's funny that Captain Black is, avail is available there. I just associate the brand with Walmart along with Swisher Sweets. Good luck with your pipe club. I think that's awesome. <laughs> uh, Cosmic, the only thing that I'll add is that uh, Captain Black being owned by Scandinavian Tobacco Group and uh, has just got worldwide distribution. So if there's going to be a brand that Americans recognize in another country, it's probably going to be Captain Black. Uh, also, New Broom said, It was nice to hear your voice and your bio, Javon. Uh, I can see why you're a great choice for moderator. Kevin is no dummy. The jury is still out on Brian. I, I didn't know there was a jury. Uh, I figured they just, you know, just uh, guilty. Uh, and then uh, John Barley Corn writes, I already had mad respect for Javon in this week's radio show only solidified that. I have to say both the, uh, I have to say both the world of this forum uh, would be a better... Let me read that again. I have to say, both the world and this forum would be a better place with more people like him. Can't agree more with that statement right there. Uh, remember, comments or questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. If you uh, don't want it read on the radio show, let me know. Or go on to Facebook, uh, follow me, friend request me. You can send me a message there as well. I get a handful of messages on Facebook and uh, do try to get back to him as quickly as possible. And uh, if you have any suggestions for show guests, yeah, I'm going to get back to getting some pipe makers on the show because I'll be at Chicago and I'll walk around and uh, meet some new pipe makers and make some connections. But if you've got any suggestions for show guests, just let me know. All right, here it comes. Rant time next. Hey, Kevin, is Lori listening? You know, the other tall, left-handed Jewish love of your life? Yeah, that Lori. Uh, that Lori posted on Facebook a while back, I can't remember what it is, about don't pick on her about wanting to have straws with her drinks. Well, don't pick on me about wanting to have straws with my drinks or lids. Yeah, lids on drinks, and I'll get to that in just a minute. But straws with drinks, if you want, if you're buying a drink and you're paying for it, then have the damn straw here if you want it, okay? With my gin and tonics, I like to have a little swizzle straw, and I like to sip through it because I don't like the ice hitting my teeth. There you go. I don't mind sipping through it, and if you think I'm girly because I'm sipping through a straw, well, pfft, there you go. I'm not, so haha. -ha. Uh, that's how I like to have my gin and tonics. I don't like the, I don't like the feeling of the ice on my teeth. And when it comes to, uh, you know, you go out to a fast food place or someplace like that and they give you a paper cup, well, I don't want the lid. I don't want the lid unless I absolutely need to take the lid with me in the car. Why? Because I want to be able to go up and refill the drink without having to deal with the lid. The only time I absolutely mandatory want a lid is if it's a cup of coffee. If it's just an iced tea, which is the only thing I really drink out of, at a fast food place, is you know what? Just leave the lid off. Just give me a straw. 
And if I want to take it with me in the car, then I'll go back and get a lid. But the odds are I'm not going to take the drink with me in the car because I'm just going to be done with it by the time I'm leaving the restaurant. And I won't want a refill to go with me. And if I take a lid or if you put a lid on it for me, well, you've just wasted a whole plastic lid that's going to end up in a landfill and be there for 11.2 million years long after, you know, the long after the cockroaches are eating it. So straws and lids, you know, it's an option, should be an option. And if you want it, great. If you don't want it, leave it alone. Oh, and uh, Lori, don't forget, I've been with Kevin longer than you have, although just once a week. You get them all week long. All right, there you go. Comments, questions, and again, uh, we've had a couple of iTunes reviews. We'll get to those next week. I'll read those, and I do appreciate those. So if you're on iTunes, leave us a rating and review. That would be absolutely wonderful. If you're not, go on there and register. And uh, thank you to Gene for joining me. Thank you all for tuning in. And until next time. Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy Paging Mr. Birdie, Mr. P.U. Birdie. <laughs>